And as you're being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1,159. 1,159 will be in Ephesians chapter 2, finishing the uh, message that we began last week out of Ephesians 2, hopefully, Lord willing. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 10. Listen carefully, because this is God's word for you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God once more and ask his blessing on our message today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this critical text that we have to look at today. That this is the beating heart of the gospel for us, the good news of our salvation. I pray that you would equip our minds to hear what is to be said. And more importantly, to prepare our souls to obey and believe what has been said. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a passage, as we said last week, when we looked at the first three verses about being dead in the trespasses and sins and being holy and sensitive to the things of God, that this was a very countercultural passage to the wider secular culture, a culture that, for the most part, looks at itself as being basically good, as being someone whom that the Lord is probably pleased with, and if anyone's going to get into heaven, well, it's probably me. This is the secular culture that these first three verses really run counter to. But as we look into the rest of this passage, this passage is countercultural to the wider religious sector of our, of our society. Why do I say it like that? Well, every world religion, whether it's Islam or Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, you pick it. Whatever world religion, aside from Christianity, every world religion agrees with those first three verses. There's something wrong with us. But they don't agree with the remaining six that say, and you can't do anything about it. 
Every other religion will tell you that you have to work your way to get into paradise. That as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll probably be fine. It's as much assurance as they can give you, by the way. This is very different than that. Christianity is the only religion, because it's the truth, that will tell you you can't solve your biggest problem. You can't raise yourself from the dead. This has to be an act of grace. We don't like grace. We'd like to earn it for ourselves. That's why even religions that try to copy Christianity, like Mormonism or Roman Catholicism, that would say, well, you do your best and God will do the rest. You're saved by grace through faith, with an asterisk on the faith that says, also get a lot of stuff done to make yourself pleasing to God. That's what we're going to see here in this passage. That's not true. That it's all of grace. And it's all by the love and mercy of God. So as you see in your outline, again, we're kind of in the midst of two... uh, uh, we're We're in the middle of one sermon that we started last week. We saw the first point last time in that we all started out life dead. That we were all insensitive to the things of God. But now we're going to look at point number two as we examine verses four through six today, four through ten today. Don't don't panic. Four through ten, that God brings the dead to new life. God brings the dead to new life. So again, to set this up, this is a letter that Paul has written to the Ephesian church. We've seen in chapter one of the gracious character of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved in our salvation. Father to predestine us, the Son to redeem us, and the Spirit to seal us in this salvation. We see that this comes to a people who utterly don't deserve it in chapter 2. Folks that are completely dead and insensitive to sin. Following in lockstep with the rest of the world. Following after Satan. And then what we're going to see as the letter continues into chapter 3. This is a new humanity that's being recreated. A new humanity that pursues after the things of God is what we see in chapter 4. A new humanity that relates to their families differently, to their employers differently in chapter 5. And indeed, as we get into chapter 6, that they fight against the very spiritual forces that they were following after in chapter 2. So how do we get there? How do we go from dead in sin, insensitive to God, to devoted to God? That's where we get in verses 4 and following. And of course, it's those first two words in verse 4. But God. But God moves. It requires his initiation to get involved. Now, notice what it says here in following. But God. Does it say, but God saw some potential in a few? But God saw a few people that were doing better than some of the others and decided to show them, give them a little helping hand? That's not what it says. The basis of why you and I have been delivered from our sin is purely because of the mercy, or as some scholars translate it, the pity of God. And because of his great love that he has love for us. Notice that he says that this all happens while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. This is not after we've shown some promise that we get God's attention like a glittering jewel in the mud. 
We were all, those of us that have come to Christ, were just as dead as everybody else before Christ saved us. And that's what it says here. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were made alive together. Then it says, by grace, you have been saved. We throw that word saved around a lot in our Christian culture. We like to ask other people if they have been saved. But the question is, from what? If you are saved, it implies you're being rescued from something. And we actually saw that back in chapter 3. We're being saved from the wrath of God. That should draw us quite a picture. That the very person that we have utterly offended, the one that we have committed all our crimes and treason against, is going to be the one to save us. That's rich in mercy. That's great in love. This is what God is doing for us, to save us from his wrath. But it involves even more than that. He continues. We have been saved in verse 5, then continues in verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Last I checked, we were all still here. What does it mean to be seated in heavenly places in Christ? Because he's referring to this as if it's in the present moment that we have been raised with him. What this is doing is at a couple of different levels. One is that this is talking about, it is making an analogy to our own spiritual life. Christ has been physically raised from the dead. That same power that was at work in raising Christ from the dead is the same work that's involved in raising you spiritually from the dead. It's a one-to-one of our resurrection. And this exaltation that Christ has experienced of going up into heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, where he can rule and reign forever, we're seated in victory. Notice it says we're not seated at the right hand. That's That's an honor and authority reserved for Christ and Christ alone. But we get to share in that victory. So at the one level, this is talking about what is happening right now, spiritually. We've been raised from the dead, from our sins. We're no longer bound and captive to those anymore. We don't have to submit to our old sinful natures again. But there is another level, too. That this does point us to the future. One day we will be raised physically as well. And one day we will be seated in the heavenly places as well. And in fact, it's so sure that it's going to happen that Paul can speak of this as a present reality. We do this today when you're paying somebody and you can say the check is in the mail. It means you've been paid. It's going to get to you. You might as well say as it's already been done. That's the same thing as what Paul is talking about here. So what does this mean for us today? Step back and apply this personally. This means that you have a victory over your present sin. When you look at those sins that you struggle against, these are things that the Lord has raised you from. Are you going to be perfect in this life? No, no, you will not. That's why it's by grace. But we don't have to look at this and say, well, I'm never going to get past this sin because this is how it's always been. So this must be how it's always will be. I'm just going to give up. No, you've been given new life. You've been raised from the dead spiritually. You don't have to follow in lockstep with the world anymore. You don't have to keep going to those websites anymore. You don't have to keep defending your own reputation by lying. 
These are things you don't have to do anymore. The Lord has given you power to resist those. So rely on that. Don't look at this and say, it's like, all right, I'm just going to clench my knuckles together and just try really hard. It says, Lord, I need help. I need your strength. Help me to use this strength that you've already given me to overcome these sins. This also, the being seated in heavenly places, gives us a brand new approach to death. This is no longer something we have to fear or dread. But as we heard about in Sunday school today, that death is the first resurrection. Resurrected to heaven. To be seated in heavenly places. To take our spot that's already been reserved for us. Not by our works, but by Christ's gift. So now the obvious question that we have to ask ourselves is why? Whenever we have someone that comes with us for, with some sort of an offer for something free, the question is, well, what do you get out of it? What is the thing? Why are we doing this? What do you need from me? And what we find actually in this beautiful section, verse 7, is God doesn't need anything from us at all. In fact, the reason why he does this is so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. He's not doing this so he's got a people to keep him company. He's not doing this so you can give him money. Remember what we saw back in Haggai? He has all the silver and the gold. He has all the resources. doesn't need them for that. So instead, what he's doing is he is just so gracious, loving, and merciful that he wants to show it to people that don't deserve it. That's just who he is. Is that a strange picture to you? Is that how you tend to think of God? Or do you tend to think of him as an angry father with his arms folded, glaring at you? Not the picture we see here in verse 7. One who aims to show kindness to you. Not because he needs something from you. He doesn't need his ego stroked. He just wants to be kind and show you love. That's just who he is. And so we continue. In verse 8. So here, just to recap. We were miserable, poor, dead sinners following in lockstep with Satan. And now, only because of God's love and mercy, not because of any promise or potential that we've shown, he has saved us from his wrath, made us alive, raised us with Christ, seated us in heavenly places in victory over sin and death. And now we're going to figure out how. We've covered what we needed. We've covered why, to the praise of God's glory, just because he wanted to be kind and glorious to us. And now we're going to see how he's going to do this. This is, a, this is an extremely familiar passage. And I'm sure many, if not all of you, have memorized this passage at some point in your life. And because of that, we can tend to not be surprised by what's here anymore. But I pray, if you can, to look at this with fresh eyes. To look at this as an offer, as if you haven't heard this before. And let's take a look at this and see the beauty that we see in this really familiar passage in Ephesians 2. Here, Paul continues and says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, 
This is something, as Paul is speaking here, this is something that's happened in the past. By grace, you have been saved. For you grammar nerds, this is in the perfect tense. What this means is there is something that has happened in the past, and it has continuing effects into the present. We use this word, oftentimes it says, as it is written. Something has been written down in the past, but continues to have effects here into the present. Here's what it's saying here. For by grace you have been saved. It was grace back then, and it's grace now. All into the present tense. And it says that you have been saved by grace through faith. Now, what is this? What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Favor that you can't deserve. And notice that it says it's by grace and through faith. It's not by faith. Not by the power of your believing are you saved. It's by God's grace. You access that through faith. Now, many people can get confused here and say, it's like, okay, well, then is faith a work? The Lord does call us to have faith in Christ. So is this a work that we're doing? And does this contradict the rest of the passage? Well, I like an analogy that John Piper has used. If you're having a medical emergency, if you're having a heart attack, and you press 911 and the ambulance comes and brings you, takes you to the doctor, performs life-saving surgery, and you're able to, to go on living your life, do you say, I rescued myself because I dialed those three numbers? No, of course not. That'd be absurd. This is just the call-out. If that phone was unplugged, you could dial 911 all you wanted to, and your heart attack would still take you. The call out for rescue is not a work. It's an admission, what God has already told you, that you are in a desperate state, but he will be kind and save you. And you look at him and say, okay, I believe you. And then just to continue on, just for Paul to cover his bases later on in verse 8, it says that, and this is not your own doing, but it's a gift of God. You don't even get to claim the faith. Even that's a gift. The whole thing is a gift. The grace and the faith. This is something that he has worked within you. Dead people don't have faith. But Christ has raised you, given you a new heart that sees what's already true. This is what he calls us to. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. You get the sense that Paul is just kind of piling on here? It's like, okay, Paul, we get it. You've mentioned in verse 5, it's by grace. You mentioned it again in verse 8, that it's by grace. And in verse 9, you tell us it's not by works. Why is Paul so hung up on this? Well, aside from the fact that believing this is the difference between heaven and hell... If we believe that we can work our way to heaven, then we're not believing the gospel. We're not believing this passage. But aside from that, notice what he looks at in verse 9. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is about the glory of God. Your deliverance from wrath, you could almost categorize as a side effect. This is about God's glory. Do you see how radically God-centered this passage is? In verse 4, we were all dead in trespasses and sins, but we did something? No. 
but God. In his love, in his mercy, in his grace, in his kindness, you were delivered. By grace, through faith, that he gave you. So that you can't boast, but so that God gets all the glory. That's what this is about. Does he need you to worship him? No. It's a joy and a pleasure for us to get to witness the glory of God. We can't say that about anything else. That we would be given an opportunity to see God and to glorify him. And any boasting that we would do would miss the point entirely. Could you imagine if we had an award ceremony for a a brave firefighter who saved 12 people single-handedly out of the building? And as we were giving him the award, someone stood up and said, well, if it wasn't for that arsonist, then he never would have had the opportunity for that. Well, I was there. I took a picture of the guy. I'd be taking away from the work that he's done. It's the same thing for us. When we get to heaven, there are no mirrors. There's no looking at us. We don't get to sit here and say, it's like, well, <laughs> I read the Bible three times through in my life. I can see why I'm here. As you stand in the blazing center of God's glory. No. There is no boasting here. And isn't that a relief? Aren't we tired of life being about us? About it being about something more? That's what this is. It's not about glorifying ourselves. But our heart still gets trapped by that, doesn't it? That's why all these other world religions want to go in that direction. We want a little bit of credit. We don't want to be told it was a handout entirely. But it is. And the sooner that you realize that, the sooner that you submit to that, that you have nothing to offer God for your salvation except the sin that made it necessary, as John Owen once said. You don't get to stand on top of the weight of your sin and try to pull on it while God is lifting you up. You can let those things go, and you can trust in him. It doesn't have to be about your performance. We so easily get caught up in that, don't we? Well, God will be more pleased with me if I read three pages of the Bible instead of two. This sets us free from all of that. It's by grace and it's through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Even the trust that you exercise in God is a gift of him. Trusting is not a work. When you jump out of a plane and trust in your parachute, you're not doing anything. You're at the full mercy of that parachute, aren't you? That's the same thing with God. The pews that you're sitting in, you've put your whole weight and trust in them. It's not a work. You're not working as you're sitting there. That chair is holding you up. It's the same thing with God. And then we get to verse 10. And it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now we get there and we say, wait a minute, it's those works again. I thought we just got away from all of that. What is Paul saying? Is Paul changing his mind that maybe it is by some works that he wants us to do? 
No. What Paul is showing us here is these good works that he's prepared for us, the good works that we are called to do in our lives, are the result of our salvation, not the reason for our salvation. It's really easy to get those flipped, isn't it? Your faith works if you believe in Christ Jesus and because he has raised you up from the dead, exalted you into heavenly places. Do you think that's going to have a change? We're following in lockstep with Satan and now we're following in lockstep with Christ. Don't you think that should look a little different? It will. This is a promise that your life will look different. Good works that Christ has prepared for beforehand for you. Don't, don't you love that? Christ is also taking credit for the good works that you do too. It's just all the way through. This is something that we do as an act of gratitude and celebration before what Christ has done in our souls. I used to be dead. I used to not care about God and about his word. And now I do. I used to not care about the nations of the world. And now I'm very concerned about their salvation. That doesn't happen. That's not normal. That's supernatural. It's grace. That's what he calls us to do. Are there good works for you to do? Yes, there are. Has God prepared beforehand, has decreed what those works are for you? Yes. Some of those works are universal to all of us. We're all called to pray. We're all called to seek him in his word. We're all called to evangelize the lost. All those things are universal to us. All these are works that he's prepared beforehand for us to go and do. And there's also specific works that you've been called to do that I have not, and that I've been called to do and you have not. Some of those good works, he's called me to to be here, to give you his word. Good works, I don't get to take credit for this sermon. That's why when you thank me for the sermon, I'm going to say, praise God. Because he's the one that's worked it through. But this is a good work that he's called me to do. And I'm responsible to go and do it. Again, not to earn my salvation. If my salvation was dependent on this sermon, I would be in trouble. Because in the midst of everything that I do, there's a little bit of sin mixed in there. All of our good works, as Isaiah says, are as filthy rags before God. We get into heaven by grace. So what's the takeaway from this passage? I have a couple of implications for you. A couple of things. If these words are true, and they are gloriously true, what does this mean for us? What does this imply for our lives? The first thing that I want you to take away from this is to relax while you work for God. Have you ever had to do a project in front of somebody who was very critical of the work that you were doing? Maybe you were trying to cook a grandma's recipe and she really wanted to make sure you were getting it right. Or you were doing some woodworking in front of your uncle and he was making sure you were handling that plane correctly. How did that feel under scrutiny? Especially if you had to do this under someone who didn't like you. I was looking for a mistake. That's very stressful work, isn't it? You're triple-checking that recipe card. You're measuring three times before you cut a half bit. In this passage, God looks at you with love. Again, not because of who you are. 
Not because you read your Bible today, though you should. But that's not what makes God love you. What makes God love you is because you are united to Christ. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus as perfection. The same look that he gives his son is the look he gives to you. So don't worry. Do the task that he's called you to do. Don't fumble over the recipe card. Read it. Look at it. And work what he's called you to do. Knowing that you are already accepted in Christ. That should motivate us to work more. You work more for love than you do for fear, don't you? Works of love are much more appreciated than works of fear, don't they? Wives, what kind of flowers do you prefer from from your husband? I'm sorry flowers, or I was just thinking of you flowers. Which one means more? Someone who's trying to get in back and trying to offer something, or someone who says, I'm doing this out of the love of my heart and want to do this for you. It's what we offer up to Christ. We're not coming up to a mean tyrant ready to zap us with a lightning bolt. We're coming up to a, to a loving father who's going to take our terrible crayon drawing and is still going to appreciate it because he looks at his son and sees perfection. That's the first implication. God's forgiven you. You're free to work for his glory. Your salvation is secure. So I don't have to think about yourself anymore. Think about other people. You can get to work for others out of love, not fear. And the second point I would encourage you is to live like you're in heaven already. What do I mean by that? Have you ever had the opportunity to take kids somewhere they're really excited to go to? Whether it's Disney World or the park. And you tell them it's time to go, especially if they got somewhere like a Disney And they'll get on every bit of paraphernalia that Disney has ever produced. They'll wear the shirt, they'll get their toys, they'll get their shoes, put on the little ears hat. They are ready to go and they haven't even gotten to the park yet. They're getting in the car, singing their songs. Because they're looking forward to what is ahead. And they want to try to extend that experience as much as they possibly can. To begin it as early as they could. We adults have learned not to be excited about things. Or at least not to show it anyway. But y'all, we're on our way to heaven. You know what heaven is? It's serving Christ perfectly. It's experiencing holiness freed from sin. It's loving and worshiping God. And your spirit has been raised, so you can begin doing that now. Will you do it perfectly? No. That's why there's going to be heaven, what we have to look forward to. One day we will be freed from the presence of sin as well as its power. But we can start living in joy today. Can start serving the Lord today. Because that's what heaven is going to be. Is serving him. And maybe that doesn't sound appealing to you. I know part of it might be as we're used to service costing us a lot of energy. That won't be the case there. But if heaven not being golf and hunting for all of eternity, if that disappoints you, then perhaps you haven't seen who Jesus is yet. And I would ask you to ask for that gift. This isn't something you can gin up on your own. 
If you don't have faith in Christ today, then ask for that gift. Ask for the gift of faith. Ask for him to raise you up from the dead so that you can see the glorious grace that he has offered to you. And if you're already in Christ, then let's go tell the world about this. Go tell the world about a loving father who wants to see his people in heaven so he can show them more of himself, more glory, more kindness, and more love. Where it's all about him. That we poor sinners get to enjoy. This is the the servant pulled up from the ditch to live in the castle. It's grace upon grace upon grace. And it's true. So let's live like that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have had together. To examine your grace towards us. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone who is here who has not come to faith in you, who has not put their trust in you, then I ask that they would do so today and that they would love and serve you all the days of their lives because you have loved and served them. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.